You're listening to a Southern Star Media Production. It, it kind of seems like a bit of a military naivety on Collins's part. Um, Collins wasn't a traditionally trained soldier, um, which I suppose is part of his downfall, really. Um, he hadn't taken, while he had helped with the organisation of a lot of ambushes, and that he hadn't taken part in any ambush himself, which in part is kind of his undoing there, really, because uh, Emmett Dalton, uh, quite a, a well-decorated World War One soldier and that, he kind of knew the protocol for ambush situations, and that is to get out of the, the target zone as, as quick as possible. Um, and that's that's exactly what he says he has told the driver to do, to get out as fast as you can. And it's Collins that says that they, they get out and, and fight. 100 years ago this month, General Michael Collins was killed in an ambush at Belnablaw, not far from his hometown of Clannacilty. As we approach the centenary of the passing of this charismatic and sometimes ruthless revolutionary leader, we're delving into the final journey of the man affectionately known as the Big Fella. I'm Dylan Mangan of the Southern Star, and this is the In The News podcast, The Death of Michael Collins. Well, I heard, I thought I heard a voice calling me, and I jumped up, and at that stage O'Connell had come up the road to me, and he said, where's the Big Fella? So I said, he's around the corner around the bend and we both went up there and he had been shot he was lying there with a very gaping wound to the back of his head so to help us unravel the mystery and circumstances of Collins demise we are joined by Jamie Murphy general manager of the Michael Collins House Museum in Clannacilty Jamie his assassination has been the subject of much speculation and intrigue with Collins untimely death continuing to spawn numerous conspiracy theories. But before we get to his death, it's important for us to understand just why the man was such an important figure. So could you tell us who was Michael Collins? Well, I, I suppose Michael Collins is, who Michael Collins is, is probably one of the most difficult questions that we get. It's, it's the most basic one, but it's the most difficult question that we get. Um, Collins, in basic terms, was a revolutionary figure in the, the early 20th century, the revolutionary years in Ireland. Um, he was, a, 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 I suppose, predominantly a politician, later would have seen himself as a, as a soldier um, and went on to become, what I suppose, one of the leading figures of the revolutionary years in Ireland as well. And he was killed during what we kind of refer to now as the Civil War. Mm. What caused the Civil War and what role did Michael Collins have in it kicking off? Um, so I suppose that the, the Civil War really goes back to the, the Anglo-Irish Treaty. So after the War of Independence, um, the, the Irish government, Dáil Éireann, go and negotiate with um, the, the British government at the time. Um, David Lloyd George, uh, Winston Churchill, Lord Birkenhead, um, they're the representatives of, of the British team. Um, for the Irish team, basically, it's chaired by um, Arthur Griffith. Um, Michael Collins, he's often seen as kind of the leader in the negotiation party, but he was just a, a, a kind of an ordinary member of the negotiation party, was led by Arthur Griffith. Um, but uh, along with, with Arthur Griffith, you have Michael Collins, uh, Robert Barton, um, and a, you know, a, a few others in the delegation who go over for, for the, the negotiations. But in the main, it, it, the, the, a lot of the negotiations fall down onto Arthur Griffith and Michael Collins to carry out. I did my best, Kitty, but I'm sure my best won't be good enough. We'll have an Irish free state instead of an Irish republic. We'll have our own government, but we have to swear allegiance to the English crown. 
The position of the North will be reviewed, but at the moment remains part of the British Empire. This treaty is just a stepping stone, Kitty. I hope the country sees it as such. Oh, yeah. Mick? Is, 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 is this true? Um, now, the treaty, I suppose, that they had agreed upon is kind of the, the source of the Civil War, really. And this, the, 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 the treaty that was signed and ratified within the Dáil, um, it, it, it fell short of what we would call here in Michael Collins' house the anti-treaty IRA. So they're, they're, they had opposed the treaty. Um, so that, that in, in the Dáil, within the, the Dáil vote for the treaty, um, there was nearly a 50-50 split within the Dáil. The, 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 the treaty was only kind of ratified by about six votes. So, um, you know, there, there's, there was kind of almost 50-50 split in the Dáil. Um, one side, as I say, they wanted to continue on fighting for the full republic. That's what the treaty fell short of. It didn't give them a full republic. From Michael Collins's point of view, the treaty gave them what he called the freedom to achieve freedom. So what it gave them is their own government, um, their own army, their own police force, um, and basically got the, the, the British army and the, the, the British supported police force out of Ireland as well and gave them the autonomy basically to make their own decisions within government to a certain extent as well. Um, so Colin seen that as a stepping stone. It's, you, you often hear the stepping stone argument that he's seen that take what freedoms that they could then and then later on they, they get more. The, in opposition to that, the anti-treaty IRA, they didn't want to do this. They didn't want to compromise and they wanted to continue on fighting for the full republic. Um, you know, I suppose what people kind of misunderstand with is, is that it's a difference of opinion. Really, they actually all had the same opinion and they all wanted a republic. They just had different ways of, of achieving it. Do, do you know or is there any evidence of um, whether or not Collins kind of was indecisive as to whether he would be pro or anti-treaty? Um, no, I, I think Collins was quite pragmatic in his decisions. It, 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 when you look at his decisions and uh, and how he made his decisions, he kind of did kind of go with the majority, kind of go with the flow of how how things were kind of planning and working out. Um, I think he he looked at the the treaty as the pragmatic choice, as in like that it was a stepping stone argument, and I suppose to a certain extent he was proved correct kind of in, in later years as well that it did give enough freedom to eventually give the freedom for for the the, the twenty six counties at least. 408 years after Henry VIII was crowned King of Ireland, ERA cuts its last link with Britain. President Shauna Kelly, the new state's first leader, joins a dense crowd in Dublin's O'Connell Street as the flag of ERA is hoisted on the GPO building. Here, as the veterans of the 1916 rebellion still recall, was the headquarters of the Sinn Féin Rising. And here, 33 years later to the day, the new ERA officially becomes an independent republic. And then just kind of moving on to um, his death, like in the build up to that August, what was the kind of political tensions at the time? Uh, would it be fair to say that civil war was coming towards an end or? Yeah, yeah, no, definitely it was, it was kind of, at the time certainly it was seen to have been that, 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 that the war was essentially at, at an end really. Um, I, I suppose at that point, just to go back a, a, about a month or so, Collins had, being after the treaty was ratified, Collins became the, the, the chairman of the provisional government of the Irish Free State. Um, he gave up that role to become the commander in chief of the army just shortly after the start of the civil war. Um, and 
I suppose what happens in the civil war initially is that the, the anti-treaty IRA, they take um, control of a lot of the major towns and cities um, throughout Ireland. But very quickly, because of the um, superior, I, I suppose, um, their equipment and kind of numbers and guns and that, that kind of thing that the Free State have, they quickly take back an awful lot of these cities. Um, one of the last remaining territories is what they call the Munster Republic. So you kind of the major cities of um, Waterford, Limerick, Cork, and that's kind of the last stronghold of the, the, the IRA at the time. And the Free State Army are slowly working their way down the country and they take back Waterford, they take back Limerick, and Cork is kind of the, the last stand, really. And about this, um, this time, 100 years ago, so you're talking about the, the 70, the the 8th, the 9th and the 10th of August 1922 is kind of what was called the Battle for Cork. Um, it was kind of one, one of the bigger battles of the Civil War and um, it was kind of conventional warfare as opposed to guerrilla warfare where you had um, a large force of uh, Free State troops. They actually make an amphibious landing. So they come in off the sea and very quickly because like they bring with them armoured cars, they bring with them um, 18 pound artillery um, and there's 450 soldiers that are landing in um, Passage West, there's 120 that are landing in Union Hall. So there are large forces that are coming on and very quickly they take um, uh, the, the, the towns that they're landing in and then they work their way towards the city. So they're, they're going through the biggest kind of, I suppose, um, uh, combat areas are Rochestown and Douglas. So they, they take part on the, the 9th of August and the 10th of August as well. And there's that that's kind of, I suppose, the largest kind of, a conventional war that takes place during the civil war but qu very quickly the 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 anti-treaty ira they realize that they're, they're outgunned essentially and they begin to retreat in in retreating they kind of they blow bridges and they, they they make it difficult for the free state forces to actually get to the city they, they burn a lot of the, the barracks and a lot of the um the, the, the military installments and that around the city as well and then they basically escape west so you're talking about they're coming down here to clonakilty they're coming down into west cork and out to mccrew mary and that as well by and large very few of them are arrested, most of them escape as well. So at this point, the conventional stage of the war is finished and the, the anti-treaty IRA have escaped kind of into the West Cork, Kerry and McCroom area. That's their, their last territories and they revert to guerrilla warfare tactics as well, kind of throughout the country as well. And it's at this point when Collins comes down to, to West Cork. And um, so like West Cork was home for Michael Collins from Clonakilty. And that decision to come down to West Cork, um, like, why do you think he decided? To, I know you explained why he why he came down. Do you think he was um, maybe a little bit unaware of the danger that it posed when he was coming down? Um, I'd I'd say to a certain extent there was a, a, a he was a little bit overly comfortable. Um, because it was his home area. Now saying that he had done similar in Limerick when Limerick was taken back he had travelled down to Limerick and that as well and to, to carry out inspections and that as well so it kind of seemed to be what what they were doing is when they take back an area Collins was coming in doing an inspection basically to try and kind of get things settled and that, that in the area as well. I suppose one of the other reasons it was seen that Collins was coming down as well is because the, the, the government at the time were struggling, struggling financially and he was coming down to the 
different banks and that within Cork City basically to try and retrieve funds that the, the anti-treaty IRA had taken and kind of deposited in these banks. So he's trying to take them back to, to, to help fund the government as well. So, you know, there, there's a couple of different reasons as well. Obviously, there, there's a, a, another kind of ulterior motive that he possibly was negotiating free um, peace with, with the, the anti-treaty IRA. He had met with a man named Florio Dunhu, um, who was what was known as neutral IRA. He was kind of neither... Um, pro-treaty or anti-treaty and he was kind of seen as a, a go-between each Collins meets him on the morning of August 21st in um, McCroom so it's kind of uh, that's a scene that possibly there could have been kind of some negotiations going on there but by and large I think Collins was just coming down to carry out the inspections and and, and kind of take from there it was I suppose part of his role really as commander-in-chief. Could you talk to us a little bit about his actual like final journey so like the convoy set out from Cork on the morning. They went towards McCroom first. Yeah, so the and um, I suppose the, the the route that they took was kind of dictated by a lot of the bridges. As I say, when the anti-treaty retreated, they blew a lot of bridges and they were felling trees across roads and digging trenches across roads and that to make it difficult for the tree, free state forces to move around. And um, so they they were kind of restricted in where they could go and how they could go. So government from Cork, they leave the Imperial Hotel in Cork. That's where they stayed the night before. And because all the military um, installations had been burned in Cork, they turned to local hotels and that, that was being used as the, the main military installation in Cork at the time. That's why he's staying in the, the Imperial Hotel the night before. They leave the Imperial Hotel first thing in the morning, the first light, and they, they, they head across to McCroom, out the Lee Road and kind of through, up through Coachford and kind of that back road into McCroom from there. And they, they, they have a meeting at the the Castle Hotel in McCroom to meet um, some of the, lo- the local officers there and from there they're, they head on to Bandon and uh, now again they're kind of unaware of how to get to Bandon across these uh, unknown roads and a lot of the, the convoy weren't from the area either so to bring a local man with them a man named Tim Keller from McCroom he hops onto the convoy with them and he kind of shows them the direction to McCroom now the, the the convoy gets a little bit split up coming up to Bail and Blaw and they're forced to stop and ask the the, the a man for directions and he tells them in what direction to head on and and they all head off and they, 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 the convoy reconvenes up at Town. What they didn't know I suppose is the man that they stopped to ask was an anti-treaty scout who, who had spotted the, this free state convoy coming through their territory. There was a meeting taking place in the area of the, the, the leadership of the anti-treaty IRA and they're, they're informed of the convoy and the decision is taken to set an ambush should they come back on that journey in, in the same route on the way. Collins continues his his inspection of West Cork. He travels into Bandon, carries out um, meet, meets with some officers in Bandon, same in Clonakilty, on to Ross Carberry, same in Ross Carberry, and the same in Skibbereen. So he's he's stopping in all the kind of major towns. He doesn't go any further west than Skibbereen because the 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 Free State uh, officers from Bantry they come and meet him in Skibbereen. So he doesn't need to go any further west. And the decision is made to start to return back to Cork. So on the way back to stop off at Sam's Cross, um, it, near near his birthplace there at Woodfield and um, the, the the men of the convoy they, they go on in, in, into the four hours pub to have I suppose two rounds of Clannacilty wrestler as 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 it goes um, and on, on Michael Collins himself and Collins he, he stays with them there for a little while and then he crosses the road. His grandmother's house is across the road. He meets with a couple of cousins over there and he meets with his brother Johnny before heading off again then um, travels on through Clannacilty and buys a newspaper on his way through Clannacilty and heads back to Bandon before leaving Bandon about, about 7 o'clock in the evening there. He, he leaves Bandon for the last time. 
Uh, it was an ideal place for an ambush. It was made for an ambush. Talking about the, the ambush itself, obviously no ambush is expected or can be expected. Yeah. But was there an inkling among the Free State that Collins might be a target while he was down there? Um, like, I, I think it had been said to him, and, and even, you know, his, his brother had said to him, supposedly at Sam's Cross, you know, be careful, like, you know, I, I think um, Sean has kind of said that he, he had told him to get into the armoured car because you don't know what's going to happen. So there was, kind of, you know, people were aware of the, the situation, probably more so than Collins and his convoy because they were kind of fresh into the area, whereas people had been living in the area and knew kind of the movements of people around and that as well. And um, so he, he had been warned to a certain extent, but I suppose it had been an uneventful day that had been in. West Cork all day and had kind of you know had had faced no opposition whatsoever. So I suppose they, they thought they were, they were they were home and dry really at that stage, you know, um, and and they were very close to being as well. Even the anti-treaty IRA at Bale of Law, they they were removing the ambush. Most of the men who were there who had set the ambush, about fifty of them supposedly, lay in wait all day and had decided that Collins wasn't coming back. That and most of the Gondras. A handful of men left that were in the middle of removing a mine from the road and the, the dray car from the road when Collins's convoy approaches. Um, I suppose the, the, the thing with Bale of Law as well, people say it's an ambush. It actually wasn't an ambush because the ambush never took place. You know, the ambush was laying in wait and um, the convoy never came. The, the, the ambushing party had left and what they, they came across was a handful of men who were armed who, who began firing down on them. So it wasn't, I suppose, a traditional ambush as such. So. Um, they, were, they were just un, unlucky in that way. If there had to be a, a, another half an hour, they, they probably would have went through unchallenged. And this was obviously a very bad position. There was no, no area for retreat. The only one thing that we could have done was drive on, which I said to the commander-in-chief, I said, drive like hell. But he elected to stop here and, and fight them, you see. Mm. So we did. Like, there's a school of thought. I was watching Emmett Dalton um, speak about it, that um, Michael Collins' decision to stop and fight was actually part of his undoing and he should have driven on. Yeah, I, I suppose it, it kind of seems like a bit of a military naivety on Collins's part. Um, Collins wasn't a traditionally trained soldier, um, which I suppose is part of his downfall, really. Um, he hadn't taken while he had helped with the organization of a lot of ambushes and that he hadn't taken part in any ambush himself up until that point he was kind of on the organizational side of things as opposed to actually taking part in himself which in part is kind of his undoing there really because uh, Emmett Dalton uh, quite a, a well-decorated World War One soldier and that he kind of knew the protocol for ambush situations and that is to get out of the, the target zone as, as quick as possible um, and that's that's exactly what he says he had told the driver to do, to get out as fast as you can. And it's Collins that says that they'll, they'll, they'll get out and, and fight them. Um, now, I suppose they were at an advantage and a disadvantage that I suppose they're, being, they're on the roadside, they're being overlooked as well. So they're at a disadvantage at that. Their advantage was, I suppose, that they had an armored car. They had, um, you know, a Vickers machine gun with them as well. They they outnumbered and outgunned the, the men on the hill, really. And I suppose that that was the split second decision that this is only a handful of men firing at us. You know, we we get out and attack them. And I suppose that that that's his downfall there. He was generally have the rifle thrown down at his feet in the in the touring car, where he got it up and put it by his shoulders, got it ready. And I said to this soldier, Barry, because I 
just no wonder he would uh, be getting the rifle ready because this is a treacherous looking place not ever thinking at the meantime that we were going to be ambushed yes, we had started firing but we were actually firing at nothing we see nothing but we were firing for uh, to where the firing came from away up on the hills although some of uh, the city fellas said to me who were dublin lads that uh, look at the fella, look at the fella, look at the fella. Well, uh, I had fairly good sight at that particular time and I didn't see any fella. In fact, I honestly believe myself that they could have killed us all if they so wished. But I'm sure the one and only man that they were aiming at, or trying to aim at anyway, was General Michael Collins. He was the only man that uh, they wanted to put out the way. And uh, General Michael Collins stood up and had a gaze around him. He was loading his rifle in the meantime. And whilst he was... Uh, loading his rifle, uh, one long shot, apparently like from a sniper, rang out and hit him in the side of the head, the right hand side there, fell down and he never spoke again. Could you tell me a little bit about who is thought to have actually pulled the trigger? Is there any way of knowing or is it all conspiracy? I, I think realistically there's probably no way known and I'd say probably the person who did it probably doesn't even know you know um, now obviously they're, 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 the train of thought that most biographers um, accept and uh, is kind of generally accepted now is that Sonny O'Neill is the man who pulled the trigger um, as I say it, it, from I suppose from our point of view here in kind of carrying out historical research and that there's evidence for and there's evidence against so there's no, there's nothing really kind of concrete to say definitely that this man said it or this man did it it's a lot of hearsay it's a you know a lot of yes Sonny O'Neill was at Bail Le Blanc whether he was actually there during the time of the ambush is not known and um, you know it's it said that he um, was uh, you know not a, a sniper but he was a crack shot um, he, he had been at World War One. he had, you know, was, was supposedly a good shot. He was also badly injured and kind of walked with a limp and had a bad hand. So, you know, was he capable of it at that point in his life? It's, it's hard to know. And again, it, it does, I suppose, you have a lot of conspiracy theories about Collins, about who shot him and all sorts of theories that it could have been somebody from his own convoy, that it could have been, you know, that it, was just, it wasn't the ambushing party that did it, it was somebody that was passing by from the opposite direction and all, all sorts of theories and that come out like realistically there's, there isn't the evidence to support any of them um, and the, 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 the truth is probably a lot closer to the story that that is told really that, you know, Collins um, comes out of cover, travels up the road a small bit while the anti-tree IRA are, are retreating. The machine gun jams on the, on the armored car, giving, I suppose, the, the ambushing party up on the, the hill a little bit of a reprieve and the opportunity to fire a couple of shots down onto the, onto the roadside. Collins is left in the open at this point and is killed. And I suppose at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. You know, it doesn't change the, the result. You know, that you can kind of find out who killed Collins and, you know, it named the soldier who did it. But at the end of the day, the result is the same. And that's Michael Collins died there at the Bale of Law um, from a gunshot wound to the head. And he, I suppose, Ireland on that day kind of lost one of their, their greatest revolutionary heroes at the time. You say it was a big wound, a bad It wound. was a very large wound, open wound in the back of the head there. And it was difficult for me to get a first field age bandage to cover it, you know, when I was binding it up. Uh, it was all quite obviously to me with the experience I had, it was a ricochet bullet. It could only have been a ricochet or a dum-dum.
Did he talk to you at no, any no, time no, after no, he'd been hit? No, no. You felt he was dying? I felt he was either dying or dead at the time that I reached him. Hmm. Personally, I was holding the body of the commander-in-chief in my arms, and uh, the rest of the cortege was moving ahead as best they could. And it was a sad, sad journey. He talked to us a little bit about the immediate aftermath of his death and how that was received within Ireland and internationally as well. Um, well, I, I think at that point, like regardless of, um, I suppose, how he was viewed from the anti-treaty side that Collins was quite well respected, even though people kind of opposed his views on the treaty, he were, I think they, they respected Collins as a man and uh, as a, a kind of a politician and a soldier that he was. Um, and I think you kind of see that in the days afterwards, there's a huge outpouring of grief throughout the country. I suppose half a million people attended his, his funeral as he lay in state in Dublin um, over the course of a few days. Um, at the time, you're talking about that's a fifth of the population of Ireland. So there's about two and a half million people in Ireland and a fifth of that population is coming to see Collins. So, you know, he, he was, as I say, a hugely respected character. And within, I suppose, the people who were grieving for him as well, you obviously have the respect coming from the, the British side of things. Collins had kind of from, come full circle within the British media and kind of their opinion of Collins as well. Like, you know, two years previous, Collins had been known as the, the, the leader of a murder gang. These were the headlines that were about Collins. And here we have two years later that, that they're mourning Collins as well. Because I suppose while he was the man who kind of had... Uh, helped lead the, the this guerrilla war that was kind of that that had caused some major atrocities. He was now had one of the key figures in bringing that to an end as well, and kind of bringing about peace as well. We started our sorrowful journey down the river. There were tears all over over the place. I mean, everybody was grief stricken, including even the the members of the crew and the members of, of, of the guard that were on doing honour to the chieftain. The boat proceeded very slowly down the River Lee and when we were coming out into the harbour I was surprised to notice that the British destroyer fleet was in line astern and dressed, the troop, their sailors dressed along and we were greeted with a salute of trumpets general salute and this was fantastic over the waves unbelievable at any time music is, is resounding over a big water space and as we quietly went further on they saluted and then they sounded the last post and I have that memory with me still it always will be it was something that is hard to describe. Uh, I was moved and looking around the harbour, Queenstown Harbour, I noticed that all the windows all around had lights in them, candles or some light of some description as a sort of a farewell tribute. It was a very emotional time.
and um, so he was kind of seen as like a, a respected figure and then obviously from the the anti-treaty side you have kind of the stories from tom barry as well so you have um the when news kind of hits kilmaine jail in dublin where a lot of the, the anti-treaty um prisoners were being held um that that um tom barry kind of talks about the, this kind of uh, um somber mood that kind of comes down on Kamenum Jail and the men come out onto bal- the balconies of Kamenum Jail and give a decade of the rosary just um, in, in honour of God's and these are the men who are opposing him like you know so you can kind of see that like you know that that, that while they, they had um, you know different views they, he, he was still kind of hugely respected by them and maybe just to, to close out a hundred years on what legacy has Michael Collins left? What is his his legacy in Ireland and abroad as well? Well, uh, well, I I think when we kind of look back at Collins and look at his achievements, the Collins and what he achieved in the space of four years is what Ireland for the previous two hundred years had been fighting for. They they had been fighting for their own government, um, and Collins had helped achieve that in the space of four years while for many years he kind of was going on the radar I, I think now as, as we're approaching it Collins is the interest in Collins and that and knowledge of Collins as well has kind of grown hugely and I, I think we have a much better understanding of who Collins was from a personal point of view and from a kind of a, a professional point of view and what he achieved in that as well now than we have ever had. That's great Jamie thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much thanks for talking to me. Thanks for listening to the Southern Stars in the News podcast. This episode was written and produced by me, Dylan Mangan, and the Southern Stars digital manager, Jack McCarran. Make sure to like, share, and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Our thanks go to Jamie Murphy of the Michael Collins House Museum in Clonakilty. Clips of John O'Connell and Emmett Dalton used in this production are from the RTE archives, and clips from the film Michael Collins, directed by Neil Jordan, were also used for illustrative purposes. Don't forget to pick up a copy of this week's Southern Star, which includes a special 24-page supplement marking the centenary of the death of Michael Collins. This special anniversary magazine features expert analysis by local and national historians, interviews with Collins family members, and much more, including his life, his loves, and his legacy, his final hours in West Cork before his assassination, and the fascination with Collins memorabilia. If you can't make it to the shops, you can subscribe online via southernstar.ie forward slash e-paper. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to another Southern Star Media podcast production. Stay connected to West Cork by subscribing to our e-paper and support local, quality and trusted journalism. Visit www.subscribe.southernstar.ie